0: On today's episode, the latest in running research. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me under trained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. Welcome back, Run Smarter Scholars. i uh, are going to try out a new format today and get your feedback to see if it's something that you enjoy. Um, like I've said in the past few episodes, I want to put more of an effort into delivering the latest in running research. I know a lot of people reach out and give their feedback. They say, yep, great. Love the podcast. I especially love how it's evidence-based and so want to lean into that to sort of differentiate from other running podcasts you might listen to, and um, try to, I guess, yeah, I guess differentiate. It's a word uh, that I wanted to try to do, and focus more on delivering up to date research. And so, I thought I might try this as a monthly sort of thing. I have papers that are being arriving into my inbox every week about things running related and injury related, and want to try and see if. Um, Every month, if there are some noteworthy ones, I want them to be practical, practical takeaways for you. I want them to highlight or bust any myths or misconceptions that are out there. I want it to have the focus on you understanding more about injuries, increasing your running performance, how you can do that safely, and how you can reduce your risk of injuries. So, um, I'm not sh- every month there'll be different papers, obviously, that come out and whether there's enough content there to flesh out something that's interesting. I uh, hope that continues like once a month, because at this stage, um, over the last, say, three weeks, I've had about eight to 12 papers that I was somewhat interested in filtered down today. I'm going to talk about three. Um, and yeah, we'll see what w- what we can get into. Um, so just a heads up, this will be like a regular format if you run Smarter Scholars think it's a good idea. Um, Okay, we already have heard from Hannah Dimmick who talked about fatigue, running fatigued. We heard that last week so that was a paper that came out so I don't need to dive too much into that particular paper. We have one titled, um, the title is Using Wearable Technology Data to Explain Recreational Running Injury. Um, that is, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm actually going to be interviewing the lead author of that paper, um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks and sort of lay out some practical takeaways for you. And as you may have seen a couple of weeks ago, there was one on strength training and looking at plyometrics and whether, what type of runners that it it may be best suited for. Um, so those are sort of like what has previously been discussed and what's, the future plans of the podcast, but let's go through these three ones I wanted to focus on today. The first paper is titled, The Impact of Running Exercise on Intervertebral Discs, a Systematic Review. And I know it's similar to like knees. People say running's bad for your knees. Um, There's this wear and tear that always happens. And, you know, if you wear out and you run too far, it's going to wear out your knees. You're eventually going to get poor or degeneration of the cartilage and that is going to contribute to early signs of osteoarthritis you're going to develop osteoarthritis and you're going to need a knee replacement all because you ran too far and we know not only is that not true that it's actually quite the opposite and so i guess you may be hearing something similar you may have you may be getting scans and seeing that the discs are you may have disc bulges, you may have um, like the height of the discs may be thinner, you may be having some sort of degenerative changes and some people may contribute or, you know, query the narrative that running or lifting or doing something like that is bad for your back or bad for the discs anyway, which I should explain. Like um, for those who aren't familiar, your spine has your vertebra, which are the bones that make up your spine, but in between each vertebra is a disc. It's fluid filled. It is, uh, acts as like a shock absorber and helps the health of the spine. And I couldn't actually get the entire paper. I could only get the abstract for this one in particular, but this was a systematic review. So they gathered 13 studies or they, after their criteria, they ended up with 13 studies to analyze, which was a total of 632 participants, and they said that four studies in that measured the disc changes using uh, just looking at people's height, so they'd do a run before and after and look at what the changes were. Nine studies used an MRI, and six studies found that running acutely and negatively impacted intervertebral discs and the height of those in- invertebral intervertebral discs so they thin out essentially um they said so six studies found that three out of the three out of the five cross-sectional studies that they found um, found that these disc parameters are better for runners than controls one longitudinal study found no significant difference in intervertebral disc before and after training for marathon runners. So I guess they looked at it over a longer period. They said, these runners are about to do marathon training. Let's look at their discs. They go through marathon training. They run their marathon. Let's look at their discs again and found no significant difference. Uh, One longitudinal study actually went for 15 years. They did a 15-year follow-up and found no significant difference in changes in the intervertebral discs between runners and controls. So they have a nice conclusion, which I'll talk, I'll discuss a little bit on this at the end, but their conclusion was negative changes in intervertebral discs exists for a short period of time after running, which may be due to a temporary compression, squashing water content out of the disc. Cross-sectional studies suggest that long-term running exerts a mild positive effect on intervertebral discs. However, this inference has not been confirmed with high-quality longitudinal studies. So, similar to what I was talking about with cartilage and the narrative that running is bad for your knees, um, we actually know through data that the uh, ground reaction forces actually squeeze and compress and um, put pressure on the cartilage, and the cartilage thins out throughout the run, and reabsorbs nutrients in the process. And I've had, I've done episodes on this in the past, but you kind of think of cartilage now as like a sponge. So you run, it squashes the cartilage, the cartilage thins out. But in the process of thinning it out, it pushes out um, contents, pushes out nutrients and pushes out uh, waste products. And then uh, when you stop running and you no longer have that compressive force, it reabsorbs, the actual thickness of the cartilage returns, but sucks up nutrients as it reabsorbs things. Because cartilage doesn't have a blood supply, well it doesn't have a very rich blood supply, so it needs to remove products and reabsorb products by this sort of compressive sponge squishing and reabsorbing nutrients. And so, this same, you could almost consider this the same for the discs. Um, you are actually taller in the morning compared to you yourself at night because throughout the day, well, when you're at, when you're sleeping, uh, you're horizontal, non-weight bearing, and you're there for several hours, and so that that lack of gravity on the spine, the discs kind of absorb a lot of that um, fluid and. As a result, your spine is longer, and therefore, when you stand up, you're taller. Compared to the end of the day when you've been sitting, walking, standing, and just um, the discs are subject to gravity, uh, pushes a lot of that fluid out, and so, and then you know you go back to bed, and the cycle repeats itself. Um, similar, similar sort of story for cartilage as what could be said for discs. The approach is. Not only safe but necessary for absorbing the nutrients and sort of moving things around and getting the um, getting rid of byproducts that doesn't want and reabsorbing nutrients that it does want. And so this is maybe why we're seeing well, we see in cartilage that running in healthy amounts is better for the cartilage in long term compared to sedentary populations, and why this systematic review kind of suggests that well, definitely there is some thinning or some, what they call it, um, temporary compression. And in the short term, there are some, what they call negative changes, which I would just assume to mean it's like thinning. Um, but sees that in the long term, running exerts a mild positive effect on the discs. So maybe there is some benefit there, but they do say at the end, to confirm this, they do need higher quality longitudinal studies, but worth thinking about always good to know and always good to i guess reassure people that running is healthy for the discs and also keep in mind that if you have had a scan of your back and has shown mild disc bulges or thinning or anything like that um, once you get beyond 35 years old 40 50 60 the incidental findings of disc bulges and degenerative changes in the lower back is really really high we get towards um 50% of the population have some sort of disc or lower back pathology in the healthy population. Once you get above the age of 45 or 50 or something like that. So um, we do want to be careful when we do scan these things and try not to be just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Too harsh drawing to those sort of conclusions. Okay, I found that really interesting. Hope you did as well. Um, the next paper that I want to talk about, it's a long title. Bear with me. It's called Gate Asymmetry in Spatio-Temporal and Kinetic Variables Does Not Increase Running Related injury risk in lower limbs a secondary analysis of a randomized trial including 800 plus recreational runners whoa what a title um they essentially looked at a whole bunch of runners and looked at the symmetry of their legs and the um or well looked at asymmetry really looked at their leg length but also looked at other variables such as cadence, ground contact time, uh, flight time, a whole bunch of things, and looking at the differences from their right foot to their left foot. And yes, they found a lot of people with leg length discrepancies. They found a lot of people with um, different ground contact times or different peak ground forces. And, you know, we just do things differently right to left. It's not exactly perfect, there is a lot of asymmetry going on but is it linked with injury? Um, I'll, just as like a bit of a summary, that the paper does a really good job of um, highlighting what was already known before this paper, what this study adds, and what can we practically take away from this. So I'm just going to go through those now. What we already knew before this topic was that Gate asymmetries or like running asymmetries, differences from right to left in the lower limbs during running might generate differences in mechanical stress exposure and increase risk of injury. That makes sense. Like you might say, OK, if I have one leg longer than the other, if one leg as a result is hitting the ground harder, there may be an increased risk of me developing an injury if I'm hitting the ground harder because of that leg length discrepancy because we know that running-related injuries are very much correlated with training loads, are very much correlated with exceeding your adaptation or getting a lack of recovery. If I'm overloading one side, maybe I'm compensating and leading to these unnecessary loads as opposed to someone else who is perfectly aligned and um, perfectly symmetrical. That's a the theory. They also say as... Um, before this paper, what we already knew, there is currently no consensus of normal levels of asymmetry in running specific populations. So if we're looking at, say, a leg length discrepancy, is one millimeter normal? Is five millimeters normal? Is 10 millimeters normal? Like we know from... Uh, studies looking at the prevalence of leg length discrepancy that 90% of the population, 90% of the healthy population, have some sort of leg length discrepancy. And the vast, vast majority is between one and five millimeters. And what's classified as normal? I would say normal is definitely not perfectly symmetrical because 90% of us have some sort of discrepancy. And so the same can be said for like these ground reaction forces, the flight times, the contact times, the differences, like what's normal if we all have some mild asymmetry. They also say the association between running biomechanics asymmetry and injury risk in running is currently not established. So I guess this is what this paper tries to attempt, see if there is a link between these things. Okay, so... That was what we previously knew before the release of this paper now that this release now they've released this paper what does this add what did they find what conclusions did they come to they say the magnitude of asymmetry varies considerably across the spatio temporal and kinetic variables investigated in these recreational runners very complicated term to say that there is a lot of people that have a lot of asymmetry and there was some that had large magnitudes, some small magnitudes. I guess similar to this leg length discrepancy. Not only do most of us have some sort of discrepancy that may be very mild. There's also very there's also some that have quite a moderate asymmetry. And there's some very few that have a large amount of asymmetry. Um, they say there was a large there was a large between subject variability in asymmetry for most spatio-temporal and kinetic variables investigated. When they say spatio-temporal, they're mainly mainly talking about kinematics, like how you are moving through space. So like knee joint angles, um, how much your cadence is, like just looking at someone running, this is what we see. This is how someone moves through space. When they talk about kinetic variables, that's mainly looking at forces, like how hard you're hitting the ground. You kind of need um, some sort of device to register what the forces are doing. And they say that there's a large difference between subjects. Um, And this next one is the main one that I want to point out. It states that the asymmetry was not associated with higher injury risk in these Spatiotemporal and kinetic variables. No, there was not associated with a higher risk of injury. They say no difference in spatiotemporal and kinetic variables were observed at baseline between the involved and uninvolved limbs of runners who had sustained an injury during this follow up. So they had um, 827, I think, participants, and there was about, they recorded about 150 injuries. Um, I should probably look it up because it's probably worth mentioning. Okay, so 836 healthy recreational runners participated. Uh, For those who who want to know, there was about 40% of those were female and they had 107 reported injuries. And so they say that out of those who developed an injury... They then go back to their baseline tests and say, okay, was, is, there something, is there a difference? Is there some sort of pattern that caused that person to be injured based on what they measured and they couldn't find any difference? How is this study going to affect further research and practice or policy? This paper says, the search for gait asymmetry in the lower limbs in healthy recreational runners as an approach for primarily prevention is not supported by scientific evidence. Roundabout way of saying if you have had someone measure your running technique and if you are completely healthy and you have someone measure your leg length and have someone measure your ground reaction forces and you see a difference in your right to your left and they come up with this hypothesis that realigning and becoming perfectly matched to right and left leads will help reduce your risk of injury, there's no research to support that, essentially, is what this paper is coming to. Um, similar to leg length discrepancy, I've done episodes on that in the past, but um, research will show that mo- most of us have a leg length discrepancy between five, one and five millimeters difference. If you needed to get to the point where these start to really, like the difference starts to really change your biomechanics. You need to have a 20 millimeter difference, which occurs in about 1% of the population. There's a nice paper done out there that looks at the graph and looks at the um, frequency or prevalence of different types of asymmetries for leg length discrepancy and what the population is. But just so we know, it's probably similar for other running variables. So this overall Advice that you may get um, talking about little differences from right to left and you might be trying to interpret your own variables. I know some people have a, um, some sort of wearable technology. It might be a, a foot pod. It might be a watch and you might see that um, you contact. It's like a 48 to 52 difference from right to left in terms of your contact time or swing time, or flight time, and those sorts of things. Just so you know, that is normal. It varies greatly in the population, and you um, doesn't it doesn't seem to be a link to running-related injuries in the healthy population. This might be different, though, if I'm just thinking out loud here, don't actually have this written down. If you have been injury-free, if you don't have an injury, and you have a 48-52 difference. But then all of a sudden through other means and other types of training, you might be in the peak weeks of marathon training, you develop some sort of niggle or some sort of pain or some sort of injury. And then all of a sudden you go back to the data and now it's 45-55. That is an abrupt change because previously it was a less discrepancy. Now it's more of a discrepancy. I would say that more discrepancy is mainly some compensation that you might be having because you are now injured, I would highly recommend getting back to your baseline, which is 4852, And the goal shouldn't really be to get back to 50-50 because, like we say, what's normal. Um, but we don't want any abrupt shifts in load. And so if it's an acute change, then we know that it's probably something you want to change. But let's not hold on to these narratives that might be passed around with health professionals, that sort of stuff. If you have these slight imbalances let's correct them to reduce your risk of injury if you are symptom-free or if you are injury-free. Um, my guess, why isn't there a difference? Why don't we see a higher risk of injury with these slight imbalances? We just need to fall back to principles. We need to fall back to why we get injured in the first place. It is because we exceed our adaptation zone. It's because we ex- we do too much training, we do too much too soon. We don't recover enough. We overload too much, and it doesn't really matter how much, how big your discrepancy is, provided that you fall within the adaptation zone in your training. Um, you might be, you might go for a, a long run, and let's just say fifty-two percent of your load goes through your right leg, and only forty-eight goes through the left leg. A cumulative load maybe your right leg can tolerate that 52%. Maybe you've adapted to that 52%. Um, And it's only once you overtrain and you start to really exceed mileage, maybe your right side is more likely to become overloaded compared to the left side. Suggesting maybe, well, if all capacity is the same, if your capacity on your right and left is the same and then you overtrain, Maybe the right side is more likely to develop an overuse injury because that's taking forty-two percent. It's taking fifty-two percent of that accumulative load. Just thinking out loud, but we need to fall back on those sort of principles and um, know that other kind of narratives aren't really that supported by the research. Okay, and lastly, we have a paper that came out just last week. Um, The title. Again, okay, similar to the previous title, the results and those sorts of things are a dead giveaway in the title. Um, maybe, maybe I'll talk about the title afterwards. Let's let's leave it open for a bit of surprise. Um, they looked at foam rolling and they looked at stretching, but well, I guess two interventions against other interventions. They want to see what foam rolling did and what stretching did with when it comes to acute flexibility and stiffness, improvements in flexibility and stiffness uh, compared to other warm-up interventions. This was a systematic review with a meta-analysis and their intro introduction, sort of setting the stage, says, our systematic review and meta-analysis was conducted to explore the necessity of using stretching or foam rolling specifically to induce acute range of movement increases as these practices have been commonly thought to induce positive adaptations such as range of movement and passive peak torque enhancements as well as decrease stiffness. Previous reviews did not show any difference in range of movement increases when compared stretching and foam rolling indicating that there are similar effects and underlying mechanisms. So they're they're saying that previous studies have compared the two and showed that there are similar effects, but what are these similar effects compared to the rest of foam roll or warm-up routines? They say those effects, which are often described as specific to foam rolling and stretching, are also well known in the effects with general warm-up routines. Therefore, we hypothesize that other interventions known to trigger similar mechanisms – Eg, enhanced muscle temperatures would also provide sufficient stimulus to induce the listed adaptations. So they say, okay, the the proposed benefits of stretching and foam rolling is to increase muscle temperatures, to get things moving around. To um, you know, they list the potential benefits, but then they say, well, other interventions sort of. Proposed to have those same similar benefits like increased range of movement, increased muscle temperature, all that sort of stuff. So why don't we compare those other interventions and see how it stacks up? Do foam rolling, is foam rolling stretching superior to those other things? As we said, this was again another systematic review. It gathered 38 studies, which led to a sample size of 1,134 or comparing stretching and foam rolling to other interventions. And so those other interventions included walking, vibration therapy, cycling, calisthenics, strength training, electrical stimulation, heat package, passive warm-up. I guess they're just applying heat to the area. And also cryotherapy. They say, I don't know why they put cryotherapy in there. I don't think that would help increase muscle temperature. But nonetheless, we move on the results. While stretching and foam rolling are widely associated with acute flexibility increases, this systematic review compared these interventions to other warm-up activities with the potential to enhance muscle and body temperature without finding significant differences in range of motion. There are no apparent superior effects of stretching or foam rolling on stiffness reduction compared to other interventions which brings me back to the title, which was a dead giveaway. The title was Foam Rolling and Stretching Do Not Provide Superior Acute Flexibility and Stiffness Improvements Compared to Other Warm-Up Interventions, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So keep in mind that this is just focusing on acute flexibility and stiffness. So meaning like immediately after. Because who knows, maybe stretching has better carryover in the long term. And maybe foam rolling has a better carryover in the long term compared to doing walking as a warm-up exercise. But what we're talking about in this systematic review is the acute flexibility and stiffness to then warm up, to then do your bout of activity, which, would, you know, if you're listening to this, is probably running. <laughs> they have some practical applications. And they say, for coaches and therapists who are aiming to acutely increase flexibility and decrease stiffness, it seems there is no need to specify or exclusively perform foam rolling or stretching. More aspects than range of movement must be taken into account because preparation for subsequent performance is a multifactorial paradigm. So just, you know, you can use multiple things to prepare for the task that you want to do. Consequently, reaching the same flexibility goals with any alternative intervention challenges the established view on stretching and foam rolling. And especially when the importance of time economics is taken into consideration, time-saving general warm-up routines, i.e. doing some dynamic exercises or cycling, may be preferred in practice. Saying that, okay, stretching and foam rolling may take a lot of time, maybe time we don't have, maybe time that is better spent doing some dynamic exercises such as like Leg swings or high knees or butt flicks and, or heel flicks, those sorts of things um, maybe accomplish the task quicker and is more efficient. But they do say, to clarify, we are not suggesting exclusion of stretching or foam rolling in training regimes or training routines, sorry, especially since we did not perform analysis regarding acute and chronic effects on back pain or other benefits such as decreased incidence of musculotendinous injuries, with change of direction or explosive movements. So they say, look, you know, there's still benefits to foam rolling and stretching, but it's just not superior to these other interventions. But this is only just factoring in stiffness. This is definitely not factoring in, um, you know, reducing risk of injuries. I don't know why they put back pain in here. Maybe there's some studies in the past that have looked at stretching and it helps improve back pain. But um, you know, there may be other benefits. So what I would suggest, if you have the time, if you like to do these sorts of things, um, if you feel really good before and after stretching, definitely keep it in. Why wouldn't you? Um, It's low risk. It's not going to increase your risk. Definitely not going to have harm. And sort of keeps to my position that I've had for several years now. Um, Stretching doesn't really seem to help recreational runners doesn't help performance, doesn't seem to decrease risk of injury. Um, I did a paper, uh, I released, reviewed a paper on foam rolling and there was a cohort that did foam rolling and strength exercises and seemed to have less injuries than those who just did strength exercises. Maybe there's something there. Um, so slightly shifting my, um, my ideas around foam rolling But they're saying here, uh, if you want to do it, you still can. There's still benefit, just not superior to other interventions. And that's sort of where I fit in as well. If it feels good, do it. I know some people that feel amazing after doing stretching, and no one's going to, there's no reason to say don't do that. We need to do what feels good for us. Everyone has different warm ups, different mobility, different flexibility, different responses to different interventions. So if you feel good, do it um but if you don't like stretching and someone's telling you you need to stretch to get a significant warm up i'd beg to differ and this research tends to say that you're better off like doing other warm ups such as walking or cycling or uh dynamic exercises if you if you prefer to do one of those things if you if you're better off suited if you feel better afterwards i'd say gravitate more towards that like I said, this is going to be a new um, sort of topic, a new style of podcast episode. If you enjoy it, please let me know. I'll keep bringing these out. I'd say once a month, depends. We may skip some months if these um, if the content, if papers aren't interesting enough, or I don't know, we might have a lull in some months. I'm not too sure. But um, hopefully we can keep this on track. Hopefully this helps Emerge some really interesting papers. Hopefully this helps me reach out to other researchers to come up with better, more interesting um, episodes in the future. I'll try to reach out to as many researchers as possible. I've already got a couple lined up. And yeah, hopefully enjoy. So until next time, remember every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20 minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk and increase your performance emails aren't for you consider my facebook group instagram and youtube channels and remember each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough